Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, I encourage you to check out my Amazon author page, where you'll find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books. They all make $10 great $10 Christmas gifts and $2.99 ebook downloads, including my new book just released today, NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty. Oh, shit, I got a coffee stand. Anyway... This book is so new, I don't even have a copy yet, but it's available on Amazon. Again, $10 paperback, $2.99 ebook download. There's a lot of funny stories in there, including my younger brother, Fredo, who was the property clerk of the precinct. And one day, a rookie cop vouches a box of ashes of some dead woman. Who, woman died in her house. Her husband's remains are in the house. And my brother's carrying around this guy's ashes for six months, and they're afraid they're going to lose the ashes. So they're taking it to kosher delis. My brother's partner is bringing the box of ashes to his house on the weekends because they're just terrified something's going to happen to this thing. There's another story in NYPD laughing in the line of duty about a mounted cop in the 1970s who used to go with his horse to a Hell's Kitchen bar where we would have a liquid lunch several times a week. Not that you're allowed to do that. And what happens is the horse drops dead in the back of the beer garden. How did he get the horse out without getting in trouble? You're going to have to purchase the book. So I usually release my episodes on Thursday or Friday, but since with Thanksgiving coming this week, and I know everybody's going to be busy eating or traveling and eating turkey and watching the games, I figured I would release it a little bit early this week. And today's story is going to be about a police-involved shooting and a homicide that's involved in it. And I want to go back in time first before we get to the story. When I was young and full of energy in my 20s, Thanksgiving night was the best night to go out of the year. Most young people, you don't have kids. Everybody wants to go out and have a good time. And this is before Mothers Against Drunk Driving, hyperinflation. So, you know, it was a different time. And we used to go to this bar. Those of you that are from the Bronx, it was called the Archway Bar. And it was on Jerome Avenue, just off of Kingsbridge Road. And it was in an Irish immigrant neighborhood. And the place just used to get packed on weekends or like the night before Thanksgiving. And it had it, the place was a dive, but it was a lot of fun. And it had this stage, which was held up by milk crates and plywood on top. And the place used to get really packed and loud. But it was one of those places where if you stepped out of line, they had these big bouncers. A lot of them were off the boat from Ireland. We used to call them Irish stinkoves. And I mean, if you screwed around in there, they would knock the shit out of you and drag you out of the bar and throw you into the street. On top of that, the owner of the bar, or maybe the manager, I don't know which, he would make these public service announcements sometimes in the middle of when the band was playing. And the guy had a heavy Irish brogue. And I remember one night, it was on Thanksgiving, and we're listening to the band and we're dancing. And all of a sudden, this guy would flick a switch and the band, the music would stop. He would cut off the microphone and he would say, if you, there's a white van parked on Kingsbridge Road, it's double parked. Move it the fuck out of there. And if you didn't move it fast enough, he would get a couple of his guys, somebody owned a tow company, and the thing would get yanked out of there. So anyway, that's my story from back then. Um, please don't get yourselves in trouble for overindulging. Take an Uber. Have a designated driver. One too many drinks has ruined someone's life. I know someone personally that went to jail for a DWI. It's not pretty. Um, you know, it's just take an Uber, 
don't overindulge or use a designated driver. So today I'm going to talk about a grisly murder that, again, led to a police-related shooting. But, But before we get to that, over the last 30 years, the media would have you believe that cops go around shooting people for sport. They'd also like you to believe there's no consequences. Well, I'm going to tell you that that's totally bogus, and and I'm going to explain why. Once that gun is fired, the world stops. It's not like you see in the movies like Lethal Weapon or Blue Bloods where cops get involved in a shooting. They, They answer a couple of questions, and then like 15 minutes later, they're in a bar throwing back beers and laughing about it or, you know, I don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. No, that's not the way it works. You could be involved in, it sounds weird, but in law enforcement or the NYPD, we call it a good shooting or a bad shooting. And you could be involved in a good shooting, like you could stop an active shooter in a shopping mall with 100 witnesses. And I guarantee you, whoever takes out that bad guy is going to be sitting there judging themselves and worrying about the consequences. It's just the world we live in nowadays. So back then, when I went into the police academy, they they start preparing you for things like this. So before you even hit the streets, it's drilled into your head in the police academy that you go to jail for a bad shooting. You're given countless lectures from firearms instructors, law professors, district attorneys about the consequences of of using your gun. And if you make the wrong split decision, you can find yourself on the other side of a jail cell right? You can be arrested and charged with a homicide if the shooting is bad. And you can also lose everything. You can lose your house civilly because there's a row of lawyers that are going to stand up and and represent the victim's family. And I remember early on in my NYPD career, an old timer told me something that stayed with me. And he said, there's two things you can't take back in life, the spoken word and a bullet fired from a gun. And if if you're unlucky enough to be involved in a police related shooting, the world is going to come to a grinding halt. Time and space are suspended for the unforeseeable future as a cadre of strangers, some with questionable motives, decides your fate. It's like a dream where people are coming and going and asking you questions and you can't leave. And after you ask the same question about 20 times, you start losing your sanity. So let's just say for argument's sake, I'll give you an example of what happens if you were involved in a good shooting. So say for you and your partner are doing a day tour, seven o'clock in the morning, you go out, you get your coffee, nine o'clock, the local bank is robbed and you pull up to the bank and there's a guy coming out of the bank, guns are blazing, letting shots go. And you and your partner draw on him, police don't move. The guy wheels on you, takes a shot at you. You and your partner light the guy up. The guy is dead. Again, television would have you believe everybody's going to high five you when you're going home. That's not what happens. Your patrol supervisor is going to pull up. The lieutenant's going to pull up. The commanding officer is getting a phone call at home, or if he's in the station out, he's going to respond, right? Your coworkers are going to believe it or not when some when someone's killed in a police related shooting, they're handcuffed. And that reason that is is a lot of times people that they thought were dead weren't dead and came back to life and shot somebody. So there's a guy laying on the street and he had been shot, a shot at the police, and he had a gun in his hand. They handcuff him. You're taken to the station house or the hospital immediately. The detectives are going to respond. They're going to start drawing up the crime scene. The crime scene unit's going to show up. They're going to start taking photographs and checking for forensic evidence. And while you're either at the hospital or at the station house, that's when the fun begins. 
because now they're calling for your delegate, a PBA delegate to represent you. And I know a lot of people, well, if you have nothing to hide, you should just tell everything that happened. Well, listen, you could be charged with a crime. Everybody's entitled to representation, including the police. So you're given a delegate on the scene and hopefully he responds sooner than later. Your sergeant's going to start asking you questions. A lieutenant's going to ask you questions. Your commanding officer is going to ask you questions. And then people from the borough are going to come. So probably the duty captain is definitely going to respond. A duty captain is, is um, a captain that just floats around the, uh, the borough responding to different things. And if, if a homicide comes up, he shows up. He's basically the liaison to the borough and one police plaza that's letting everybody know what's going on. He's going to want to ask you questions. You're going to get interviewed by detectives. The Internal Affairs Division is going to come. They're going to ask you questions. You're telling the same story again and again and again. Then when just when you think it's over, a district attorney is going to show up with a stenographer. And that's really when it gets hairy because you're sitting there. You've been up now X amount of hours. You told the same story a million times. You're starting to question your sanity. And now you've got to sit there while a district attorney is asking you questions. And every word and syllable you're saying is a petite little stenographer banging away on those keys on that thing. So if you get involved in a shooting, say nine o'clock in the morning, I can guarantee you, you are not going home. You might not go home for 24 hours, sometimes at least depending on the shooting, at least till three, four, five o'clock in the morning, it's going to go well over 12 hours. And then usually what'll happen is if there's something up with the shooting or they don't like the way it is, they put you on what's called modified assignment. And that's where the NYPD can send you to any one of their Siberia places like the Whitestone Pound. They take your guns away from you, your shield, and you're in the court system working midnights. If it's if it's a shooting that they think it's a good shooting, they put you on medical leave. Um, and then you're going to have to testify sooner than later, usually within a week or two. You're going to have to go down to whatever borough. So if the shooting was in the Bronx, you go to Bronx Grand Jury, Manhattan, you go to Manhattan Grand Jury. And a district attorney, basically, you're going to you're going to sit in the grand jury booth and there's going to be 16 to 23 people in there. And you hope they're cop friendly. And the district attorney is going to ask you questions about the shooting. And after he's done with you, he's going to bring in witnesses and ask them about about the shooting. And then those 16 to 23 people, once the statements are all taken, they're going to vote. And if they vote, if they vote to indict you. You're then placed under arrest and, you, you know, you're like everybody else that goes through the system and you're going to have to hire an attorney. Usually the NYPD will always, the NYPD will give you representation. They have uh, attorneys on retainer that'll defend you. And usually what happens is cops will, t so there's two ways you can, if you're going to trial for something like that, you can either choose a bench jur a bench trial or a jury trial a jury trial obviously is 12 jurors a bench trial is you waive you waive a jury and it's just a judge and you know the, the defense puts on their case the prosecution puts on their case and there's a judge there who listens to all the evidence before weighing a decision and a lot of times cops depending on the borough will go with a a a, a, um, a bench trial because they just have more faith that a judge, liberal or not, has heard countless, countless cases and will be able to decipher through the nonsense. So to the story. So it's the early 90s, probably late September, early October, rainy night, very slow. 
I remember one time an old timer said the best cop in the world is working tonight. And I thought he was talking to me and he meant rain, <laughs> meaning that rain keeps crime down. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But anyway, it was probably about eight, nine o'clock at night, slow night, drizzling out. And uh, dispatcher comes over and, and gives out a job over by the reservoir and says uh, domestic violence dispute. So a sector car picks up the call. And another radio car, since it was so, so slow, said, you know what? I'm going to back them. So she goes, all right, I have two cars going to that location. Well, several seconds later, the dispatcher comes over and says, I'm getting multiple calls on this. So when you're getting multiple calls from multiple people, there's usually something to it. So my partner and I weren't doing anything. It was, it was a slow night. We decide to back up. So you got three radio cars or RMPs. We call them radio motor patrols or RMPs. We start heading over. So the first set of cops pull up to the side of the building. They didn't pull the front entrance. They pulled to the side and they get out of the car and they can hear screaming and they, they look up and they see something in, in, in the window. I think it was like on the second floor. So instead of going around and, and going into the building, it was like garden apartments, like two and three stories. Instead of going around and going up the stairs and knocking on the door, these cops were young. You know, they, they, they wanted to see what's up. They go up the fire escape. And these two young cops go up the fire escape and they look in the window and they can't believe their eyes. There's a woman laid on the floor. There's a guy on his knees standing over her and he's got a carving knife and basically he's decapitating her. And I will never forget the panic in that cop's voice. He comes over the radio and he's like central this, you know, he's cursing this fucking guy is cutting her heads off, you know, get everybody over here. You know, he's calling, we call it a 1013. So now my partner and I are rushing over there and you're hearing screaming into the radio. My partner and I pull up another radio car pulls up, but we pull up in the front of the building, not on the side, like the two responding cops. So we jump out of the cars. The four of us hit the hallway as we're going up the steps. There's this 13, 12, 13 year old boy and he's running down the steps and he's screaming hysterically. He goes, he's killing my mother. He's killing my mother. So as we're going up the steps, we hear boom, 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 boom. So like five or six shots, right? So we go over the air and we're yelling shots fired, shots fired. And now we're, we're trying to kick in the door. And it's silent now. For You heard the gunshots. Now it's dead silence. And we're just boom, boom, hitting that door. And all of a sudden, I recognize one of my coworkers' voices. And he's like, we're in the apartment. Don't shoot. And I'm like, I yell the guy's name. He goes, yes, it's me. Don't shoot. Let us in. So we're you know, going back and forth one of them opens the door and it was like a scene from a horror movie. So the first thing I noticed as the four of us are trying to squeeze through this narrow doorway is gunpowder. It, it looked like someone had lit a pack of firecrackers in the apartment. It was just like that cloudiness of like when someone shoots off fireworks and the apartment, I'll never forget was just destroyed. Um, there was holes in every wall. Every piece of furniture was damaged. The toilet was destroyed. This guy knew he was going to hell and he just did everything, his power to wreck that apartment. And so as I'm walking through the apartment and it was a time, I think it was like a one or two bedroom. There was so much blood all over the floor that as I'm walking across the floor, your feet are sticking to the, to the blood. And the woman is laid out on the floor. She's laid back. This is basically gone, her, her, her neck and throat area. It almost looked like her spine was holding her head up. And, you know, you see on TV when someone dies, their eyes are closed, they look peaceful. 
I will never forget the look on that woman's face for the rest of my life. Her eyes were wide open and her mouth, it was like she was screaming just before she died. And what had happened was she was older than the guy she was living with. And obviously they were having problems and he just lost his mind and just started beating her. And on top of that, in addition to him slashing, almost cutting, decapitating her, there was a hole in the top of her head where he hit her with a hammer. So that hammer that he was using to destroy the apartment, he also cracked her skull. Um, he was several feet away. And what had happened was he's on top of her. He's decapitating her. The two cops see what's going on and they start pounding on the glass. He hears the noise. He turns around and goes, oh, you want some of this? Grabs the knife, throws open the window, and he's just leaning out the window, swinging that knife at these two cops. And back then, we carried 38, six-shot 38 caliber revolvers before the nine millimeters. And a 38, I mean, is, is really effective up close and personal. I mean, you'd want a nine millimeter in a running gun battle because it's more bullets. A nine millimeter round goes faster feet per second, but a 38, I mean, up close and personal will do a lot of damage. So when he threw that window open and he's starting to lunge out the window with them with that butcher knife, the two cops just empty their revolvers or pretty close to it at him. He goes stumbling back into the apartment with the knife in his hand and he falls backward several feet away from, from the victim. And I'll never forget because one of the cops I asked, I go, what happened when you shot him? And he goes, he goes, it was like in slow motion because he started stumbling back. He goes, and when he hit the ground, he said the knife popped out of his hand like a fumble and went into the next room. And this cop was nervous about it. He goes, they're going to think I shot an unarmed man because he was in shock. And I said, listen, dude, this is a good shooting. I go, don't even worry about where the knife is. I go, this is a great shooting. I mean, I was just trying to put his, his him at ease. So you got the four of us in the apartment. Other, other cars are responding. And um, I said, how are you guys feeling? And they were out of it. I mean, they, they were just like total zombies. So I said, all right, why don't I, I took the two cops that were involved in the shooting. I says, come with me. Let's go to the hospital. And as we're walking out, the sergeant comes running up the stairs and he goes, are they okay? And I said, yeah, I'm taking them over to the hospital. He goes, all right, which hospital? I told him, told him which hospital. I think it was Misericordia. I says, I'm taking them over to Misericordia. He goes, all right, just go. He goes, you know, we'll, we'll take care of this at the hospital. And, and I rushed them over there. So at the hospital, you know, people are now, like I explained earlier, are showing up, asking all sorts of questions. And the delegate shows up. And the delegate was this old timer. I mean, he's probably about my age now. I'm calling him an old timer. The guy was in his late 50s, maybe early 60s. He was home. Like, I think he was doing a midnight. So they dragged him off the couch. And he's out of it. And like right in front of everybody, the duty captain goes, so what happened? <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Like you'd think he would like bring them off to the side in a room and say, all right, guys, are you all right? So anyway, so the case went to a grand jury. Obviously, there was so much evidence that it was a good shooting that the cops, the, co the, the, the two cops, you know, they, they were cleared, obviously. But the thing is. They were never the same again. Like these two guys, they were great. I mean, they still are. They were great guys and they were aggressive young cops. They used to make a lot of arrests, always back people up. They just kind of, you know, it just, it really slowed them down quite a bit. I lost track of what happened to one guy, the other guy that was actually, that actually, I think, fired the most rounds into the bad guy. His life was never the same again. I mean, he started drinking a lot. Used to see him in the bar after work quite a bit. 
he went through a lot of personal issues and you know i i felt bad for him everybody knew what it was a lot of us tried to talk to him and you know did the right thing you know you can't let this get to you but like he was just withdrawn and sullen he was never the same again and again he was a really good cop he probably would have been made a great detective but i i just kind of lost track to him for many years like probably like the last 18 years of my nypd career i never really ran into him again which was odd and i hadn't thought about him in decades and several years ago, I was having my kitchen. I moved down to Florida and I'm having my kitchen redone. And uh, one of the guys that came in to do um, the marble countertops in the kitchen, he saw some NYPD mem memorabilia that I saw. And he goes, oh, you a cop or a detective up in New York? And I says, I was. And he goes, where did you work? And I told him the different places I worked. And he says, um, you know, my cousin was a cop. And I says, well, everybody says that there's 40,000 members at any time, probably the odds of me knowing the guy. And he said his name and I took a step back and, uh, you know, I confirmed it with him. I said a couple of things. Goes, yeah, yeah, that's him. That's him. I go, how's he doing? He goes, not good. And I said, um, that shooting changed his life. And he goes, oh, you know about that? And I said, yeah. He goes, could you please tell me the story? He goes, he, he hasn't really told many people. And, you know, we don't really know what's wrong with him. And I, I explained to him what happened. And he goes, well, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I felt terrible because, you know, he was never the same again. It affected his life. I, I hope he's alive and well. I hope he doesn't live with the guilt that, um, you know, that obviously he carried with it. But th there's a little bit more to that story. So, you know, the detectives get involved and they're investigating the case. And um, I think it was inside the bad guy's pocket. They pull out what's called the desk appearance ticket. So in the NYPD, if you're arrested for certain designated misdemeanors, and I don't remember which misdemeanors are, but there's a handful of them that if you get arrested for, I think, shoplifting or minor misdemeanors or just a misdemeanor in general, you don't have to go through the system. So you're, you go to the precinct in handcuffs, obviously, but the cops fill out like a, it's called, it's like a package. They, they take your fingerprints, they give you all this paperwork and you get a court date. So instead of going down to court that night and spending three days in jail and seeing the judge, you can, you walk out of the station house under the promise that you're going to show up for your court date. That's why we call it a, a disappearance ticket because usually nobody shows up and then the warrant squad has to go out and look for these clowns. But what's inside the dead guy's pocket is a desk appearance ticket from the week before for assault on the girlfriend. Now, back in the old days, if you showed up to a, to a domestic violence and the female really didn't have that many marks on her or she didn't want to press charges, that was it. You know, I, I remember several times locking up a guy for domestic violence, bringing him down to court, bringing him down to court, and the victim didn't show up. Or she showed up and changed the tune and is like, no, no, I don't want to press charges. And what happens is they dismiss it right then and there. But, I mean, what, what happens a week before the police were called to that apartment, obviously he put his hands on her and she didn't want to press charges. And that's my Thanksgiving homicide story. I, unfortunately, I couldn't get a guest this week, so I just figured I'd give you guys, you know, pretty, I, I would think, a decent story. So...
I want to thank everybody for listening to my show. I really appreciate all the support you guys are giving me. I'm, I'm averaging about 500 downloads a week, which I never thought in a million years I would get. So I, I appreciate it and all your support. And I'd like to thank, I, I want to thank everybody and have a happy and safe Thanksgiving, including my listeners in Brooklyn, New York, Houston, Texas, Bettendorf, Iowa, which I have no idea where that is. I've never heard of it before. Langley, British Columbia, and Dublin, Ireland. Tomorrow, enjoy the games, eat lots of food, cherish the times that you're spending with your family. And again, if you work in law enforcement and you'd like to be a guest on this show, please drop me a note on Twitter or Instagram. Or if you've got a question, you know, I'd love to do a question and answer segment. So, you know, if you're listening, just go on Twitter and Instagram at VicFerrari50. Hey, I listen to your show. I want to know this or I want to know that. And as long as you're not breaking my balls, I'll answer it. If you enjoy the content, again, please check out my Amazon author page. Type in my name, Vic, Ferrari Like the Car, where you can preview all my books for free, including, where the hell is oh, NYPD Law and Disorder. And you can, oh, shit. What, what's unusual about this book cover is it's true. Any NYPD cop listening to this, there's you can't work a parade or demonstration. Those poor cops are going to be working the Thanksgiving Day parade. You're standing there minding your own business. There's nothing going on, and you get these bosses in the white shirts. Usually, lieutenant and higher. You, it's usually it's usually captain and higher. So they just got promoted. They've they've drank the Kool Aid, and. They don't want anybody to get too comfortable. So every 30 seconds, they're shouting at you. And, it, and in this book, there's a chapter called Never Trust an Idiot with a Bullhorn. And trust me when I tell you, there's plenty of idiots with bullhorn. So thanks again for tuning in. I appreciate the support. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. And I'll have another episode up next week. God bless.